verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What do we have here? I believe that if we are going to be able to steward the presence of God like he showed up today, that there is a memorial stone that we really, really, really need to hold on to. And that is to develop the concept of understanding, deeply understand what it means to be a son and daughter of God. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know. There are people here, most of us, if not all of us, who have been saved for a long time. You're like, I know what it's like to be a son and daughter. I don't know if that is, in fact, true. Now, how can I say that? I got saved when I was six. I got baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was 16. And honestly, I don't believe I really understood the, more of the depths of what it really is to practically and spiritually walk out a revelation of identity that I am a son and I am, or, or you are a son or daughter, right? It really took that long. And so a lot of us may have the Christianese, right? We may have the language. We may have the verbiage. Yeah, I'm a son. Yeah, I'm a daughter. Great. But let's unpack that. What does it look like? How is this going to transform your life? How is this going to change your behavior? Now, what's so powerful here in 1 John 3, I mean, we have a bunch of things that are going on here. Behold. This doesn't come up too much in the New Testament, the word behold. I mean, the only other time I can really think of in the New Testament is behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold. It is stop, listen, grab a hold of, let it be a part of you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we shall be called children of God. It's not just you are a child of God. It's behold. Listen to it, understand it, grab it, and put it on. Now, behold, we are children. And then there's a promise. Therefore, the world is not going to know you because it did not know him. And any of you feel like sometimes in your daily grind, the world does not know you? Of course not. They're not going to know you because they did not know him. And a future promise. We're not exactly sure what we shall become. But we do know this. That when he does return, that we shall be, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. Transformed. And then we shall see him as he really is in his fullness. Uh, another very popular verse um, here, of course, uh, would be Romans chapter 8, verse 15. All right, very popular one in this house. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage. This is verse 15 of 8. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's a couple things here, right? We now, through the blood of the Messiah, through the blood of Jesus... We no longer have a spirit of bondage. And we don't have a, a spirit of bondage to the plague of fear, but we received a spirit of adoption. What's very interesting here is that Paul is not saying avinu. He's not saying our father. That's what it would be in Hebrew, avinu or avi, my father. He doesn't say that. He says Abba. In Hebrew, the way to say father is av or avi, my father. 
Paul is choosing to use Abba. Abba, really, to translate it into English, truly would be daddy. It's a different flavor, right? God forbid if one of my girls came up to me and called me father. There's some element of, like, coldness to it, but daddy? There's a sweetness to it. There's a gentleness to it. There's a promise to it. And that's what the promise is, right? He's not just our father. He's our daddy. Because we're now sons. Now, here's the thing. You know, everything and everyone in this life and in this world will try to pull on you to give you an identity. Our first and foremost identity is, in fact, that we are now sons and daughters of the most high God. And there's so much to unpack, and this sermon is not going to be able to unpack all of it. But just pause for a moment. The maker of heaven and earth, the eternal one, the all-knowing one, the one of everlasting, has said that you are my sons and you are my daughters and you call me Abba. And by the way, at the end of the age, you will be truly, fully revealed into the image of my son. That's amazing. So adoption, what does this mean? This means that we are no longer an orphan. And I'm here to tell you that many people come to faith they think they're sons, but they don't act like sons. They think they're daughters, but they don't act like daughters. Because you can be adopted and still have a presence and a mentality of a spirit of orphanhood. An orphan. Someone who doesn't really understand their place, doesn't understand their inheritance, doesn't understand how a father could view you. And if that is what you're walking through, what ends up happening here is we can adopt what we call a spirit of orphanhood. I know everyone in this room is a son. You're born again. You're a believer. But there's still a possibility of walking out a lifestyle and a life where we don't understand the connection. And we, we see this in the world, and we see, I see this in, in believers, and I see this in the Big C Church where we begin to go to everything and everyone to try to receive an identity. Some of it's so overt. Some of it is subtle. You're a husband. You're a wife. You're a worker. You're a teacher. You're a plumber. You're an electrician. You're an excavator. You're a minister. And so this has deep, deep, deep effects. What do you identify with first? And I'm taking my time because there are so many people who are like, I get it. I don't want to cast judgment. I'm not calling out names because I wouldn't do that. and That's not my place. But my general concept here is I don't think we really get it. Because if you're a son, you look like the father. Hmm. Anyway, this pops up in our culture. Let me say this to my high school kids when we're, when we're talking about philosophy and history and things like that. It's so unique in our, in our culture that what do you do when you meet someone, right? The first thing that you do is you ask what their name is. Hi, my name is David, and the next question is always what? What do you do? This is very powerful. The second characteristic of knowing someone, first thing is knowing what we call you, what your mother and father has named you, which is going to differentiate you from other people. And then the second question of characteristic of I want to know you and know who you are is to ask what you do for a living. What do you do? Now, this seems, through my experience, to be more prevalent with males. I do this, I am a teacher, I am an engineer, I am, you fill in the blank. And this is why one of the most devastating things that I have found is that when a male loses a job, what goes with them? Their self-esteem and really their identity. 
right? Their identity got so caught up in the thing that they do that you take the thing away from them and then they have no longer identity. I, I'm not trying to make generalizations. I, I know culture and expectations of families have changed, but my experience has been that generally speaking, that's how males operate. And generally speaking, females operating a lot of times through an identity, through the caregiving, taking care of the children. Not all, because obviously not all women have children, and not all women operate this way. But there is a big piece to this. And even sociologically and historically, if you go back to the roots of some of the feminist movement in the 50s and 60s, they are articulating this construct. The construct is females, mothers, having their identity so caught up in their children and in their husbands. This is the proverbial, quote-unquote, I apologize, the quote-unquote, naggy, quote-unquote, wife. Nagging, nagging, nagging. How come you didn't do this? Wear something nicer. You know, you got to iron this. You got to do this. How come my kid only got a B? How come they didn't get an A? Blah, blah, blah. Naggy, 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 naggy. And it's been argued not by me, but by the early feminists that what has happened here is that the woman has gotten her identity through her progeny, through her children. And she's living vicariously through them. Now, is man and women built to work? Yes. Is man and women built to caregive? Yes. But if it doesn't flow out of the concept and the understanding that you're a son and daughter, you are going to get your identity wrapped up in it, and it is going to be bad. You're going to work 60 hours a week. You're going to alienate your family. You're going to get all of your success and self-esteem through the work. And God forbid, if you lose a job one day, you're going to be a train wreck. Or if your children do not respond in kind to you, or they do not choose to follow the faith, or they move away, you're lost. I don't know what to do now. Of course, your job is gone. But before all of that, you're a son and a daughter. We have to grab that. So what is this, this kind of mystical thing known as the orphan spirit? Really, it's an idea, and really I should say an attitude, of how we look at God. Do we look at God as a son and daughter, truly adopted heirs into the kingdom? Or do we look at him still as I'm adopted in, but I still have this bit of orphanhood? Where I don't really know my place. I don't have an inheritance, really, because orphans don't have an inheritance. It's an attitude of how we're going to look at others. And really, it's an attitude of how we're going to look at the self. And for a little bit of a common routine, yeah, another teaching about being sons and daughters. It is. Some of you that listen to Graham Cook or, or is it uh, Jack Frost, right? Uh, Dan Moeller. Or if you've been around here in a couple years or if you've interacted with Josh and Alan or myself, right, we've really been hitting this concept of the sons and daughters. You're like, oh, another teaching. There's a reason why there has to be another teaching. It is fundamental to your walk. Because everyone is a son and daughter of something. And whatever you're a son and daughter of is what you're going to replicate. That's the spiritual DNA you're going to pass on. Right? My mother and my father are here. Their grandkids are here. My children. My children, there's a part of their DNA that are distinctly connected to my parents. In the spirit, it will be the same thing. What do you make your son and what are you a son and daughter of? How do we answer that? We answer that by, well, where do you get your identity from? And we need to reformat things. It's not what you are, but who you are. And it's not even who you are, it's why you are. Not what do you do, but why are you here? It's a fundamental question. The world asks the question of what. We as believers need to answer the question of why. You are here to be the feet and the hands of the Messiah. You're here to replicate his work. You're here to glorify the Father. You're here to spread the kingdom of God. You're here, why? To have fellowship with him. That's the why. The who is because you're a son and daughter, not the what. The world wants to answer what? What are you? It's not what I am, it's why I am and who I am. I'm a disciple. I'm a son of the living God. And if we take that on, 
not just in verbiage, not just in language, but if we unpack it, that's when you see a change to your life. Now, there's different reasons why people don't walk this out. One reason is we may think that we're not worthy of it. I'm not worthy, as Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 says, to receive all inheritance in heavenly places. I'm not worthy of that. Or maybe it's a theological problem that someone has taught you that, well, you know, you're a believer and you're a son in a philosophical, spiritual sense. Well, I read the word here, man. If I am going to be transformed in the end of the age to be like him, that means I share my spiritual DNA with my father in heaven. That's more than I'm just saved. I do what my father does. Did not Jesus say that? I only do what my father tells me to do. That's what sons and daughters, especially in a first century context, is doing. Now you may say, Dave, 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 I get this, I get this, I get this. Well, I have a little test. I have a little test. I just want you by yourself. We're going to go through this a little slowly because I just feel like the presence of the Lord is just doing something different today. Just go through this and put a check mark. Yup, that's me. X, nope, that's not me. Or maybe better said, you probably should go to a close one, a spouse, a good friend. Like, yeah, is this me? I mean, look, man, we're keeping it real here. I want to be transformed into his image. Why? So that his glory will be made known to the nations. So his salvation will be proclaimed unto the Gentiles, unto the nations of the world. That's the call of Israel. Why did God call Abraham to be a light to the nations? And 99% of us here or a recipient of that. If you're not from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're sitting here because Israel fulfilled that place of being a son. Whew. Paul has a lot to say about that. If the Jews' rejection of the Messiah has brought salvation to the Gentiles, do you hear that statement? Do you remember your, your book of Acts? Peter, James, even Paul, where do they go first? Every single time. To the household of Israel. To the synagogues. Who does Jesus go to first? To the nation of Israel. Jesus says, from salvation has come from the Jews. How did salvation get to the rest of us? Because in part, not all, but in part they rejected him. If that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. But Paul goes on to say, but if their rejection meant salvation to the Gentiles, what will their eventual acceptance of the Messiah be? Life from the dead. I had a conversation a couple weeks ago at prayer about revival. And uh, someone was asking me about revival and it's coming, and my response was not so enthusiastic. They're like, well, how come you're not so enthusiastic about revival? It's because I, I think actually people got it wrong. I'm not making dogma out of it. We could talk about it, but I, I think the proof text is in Scripture. People are talking about one billion souls getting saved and all this awesome, crazy end-time stuff. I want it. I believe it. I just think the, 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 the journey to it is off. I think Scripture shows us something. What's going to bring worldwide revival is when the church and the Gentiles return the favor, share the gospel to the household of Israel. I think that's when there's going to be true life from the dead. So, personally, and I think even somewhat theologically, I don't think we're going to see a worldwide revival that people are holding off to until we fulfill that. The scripture says we are to be, we are to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Ooh, can you imagine? We're a bunch of Jewish people and their brothers, the Arabs, except the Lord. And they love each other, and finally, the, the rift between Esau and Isaac. Or Esau and yeah, yeah. Jacob, thank you. The rift between them is healed. All right. All right, so back to the characteristics. 
Revival's coming. Just, you've got to do it in the right way. All right. Characteristics if you, do not, if you are not really walking out your sonship and daughtership. Right? Check or an X. Characteristics. Uh, you're critical of others. And you're critical of yourself. I'm critical of myself. I was just talking to my wife about it just the other day. Nothing is ever quite good enough that I do. I build something on the farm. It's not completely plumb or level. It drives me nuts. I'm hypercritical of myself. Why are you being so critical? Um, because I'm getting my identity to, through something I made. That's why. Come on. That's why. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but this is the way it works. If you're critical, not even highly critical, you're critical of others and you're critical of yourself. You don't understand that you're a son of the most high God. You're getting your identity through something that you build with your hands or something that you do with your mind? Are you kidding me? Come on, who wants a house, a spiritual revival in this place? I'm, okay, cool. We've got a, a, ten of you. It's not happening until we adopt the understanding that he's my Abba, I'm a son, and what that means. You get rid of this critical spirit. You're no longer critical of yourself that you're not worthy enough, you're not good enough. How can, if you are a son of the God of heaven and earth, how can you be not good? That's like I've done it a couple times in my marriage. My, my, my wife is, is saying something negative about herself. Right? Oh, I, I'm not this or I'm not that or I need to lose a little weight or I need to do this. And I look at her. I've only done it a couple times. I said, don't say that about my wife. What? You're my wife. Don't say that about my wife. Don't say these things about God's sons and God's daughters. You say something about my earthly kids, we're going to have a little powwow. Can you imagine the heavenly father looking down and saying, this is what you're saying about yourself? You're my son. How dare you say that? Do not be critical of others and the self. Are you critical of others? Are you critical of the self? Check mark or an X. Concerned about your image. Concerned about how you look. Concerned about what you're saying. Concerned about how people perceive you. Concerned about how if people see you as being a really devoted follower of Christ or not one. The whole image thing. Are you concerned about how many likes you're getting on Facebook? Are you concerned about what people are saying about you? Can you imagine right now if Jesus or the disciples had a social media account? Can you imagine what would be stated? Next. Are you always seeking attention? Right? Are you going around and trying to seek love from people or seek friendship from people? What it, what it shows here is that you're, you're, you're not really understanding who you are. I was just doing marriage counseling with someone, a young couple. And we were talking about getting married. I said, look, the old myth that like, when you get married, you're finding your other half, that, 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 that's a lie from the pit of hell or a lie from Disney World. It's not. Right? Marriage is not addition. It's multiplication. If you're half a person and your spouse is half a person, half times a half is a quarter. You just made it worse. You do not receive your fullness from your spouse. If that is what you're getting your bedrock of your life on and your marriage on, oh, you're going to have major trouble. Because now you're looking to the spouse to fulfill your identity. You're looking to the spouse to fulfill your value. And it's just going to be cats and dogs. It does not work. It will not work. You need to be whole with him. And you're whole with him when you're a son and a daughter. You understand that. So yeah, are we always seeking attention? Even the good attention, the affirmation from people, the affirmation from our kids, the affirmation from our loved ones, affirmation from our friends. If you are seeking attention like that, it shows that you don't fully understand the attention that the Father has for you. And you could be a Christian, you could be a believer, you could be walking it out, but you don't understand sonship. One of my personal favorites, the, uh, the religious spirit. All right, the religious spirit. Um, 
I have to do this, I can't do that. You have to do this, you can't do that. Or like the person, uh, it drives me nuts. The people that are, they always have an answer. You know, you know the people I'm talking about? I don't know if I can say this on the mic, but I'm like, shut up, please. Please. The person that's always talking in Christianese, the person that's always throwing the Bible verse at you, always, 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 there is a time for every purpose under heaven. There is a time to deliver the word. There's a time to encourage with it. Sometimes you just got to shut up and listen. You know what I mean? Religious spirit. They got to tell you how to do it. It's like, as my grandma said, you had two ears and one mouth. The good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth because you're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. She didn't always do that, but you know what I'm saying. At least the thought is nice, right? The thought's nice. She's a New Yorker. We usually have two mouths and one ear, right? But this is it, that religious spirit. Now, another one that's, that's very, very, very connected to, um, to, to being critical of yourself. That's striving and proving, right? You're always trying to strive your, your worth to other people. Strive to prove your worth at work. You're striving and proving at church. If I do this, if I give a word, or if I raise my hands, if I do this, then I'm a real good Christian, blah, 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 blah. And you're always on this journey. If I do this, I'm okay. If I don't do this, I'm not okay. Uh, if you struggle with fear and anxiety, don't think you completely have unpacked sonship and daughtership. Jesus is the model. Walking without anxiety. Walking without fear. Why? Because if he is truly my father, he's got me. He's not going to withhold. You're like, well, yeah, he might. What? How? I'm not withholding for my kids. I'm not withholding for my three girls. I'm not withholding them love, affection, help, assistance. That's not going to happen, ever. I may let them wrestle it out a little bit so they grow as adults into adulthood. I'm not going to leave them hanging. If you feel that you are being left out to dry, it means that you're probably going to be manifested through, oh, I skipped over, fear and anxiety. Okay? It's because you're not understanding who your daddy is. Six. Going back, continually fighting the same sin. I'm going to do it. I'm going to beat it. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to be able to not do the sin anymore. And whoop, there you go, right back in it. Those habitual sins. Those things that you know that you should not be doing, but yet you do it anyway. You're doing it largely because you got it. No, there's sometimes the son or daughter just doesn't know how to do something. They need to go to their parent. I need you to do this. Now, there's another piece to it. Because if you're getting your identity through other things, then it might be okay to continue to wrestle with the sin. If you know who you really are, then Paul says you will be dead to sin. You who once were slaves to sin are now slaves to righteousness. You can't become a slave to righteousness until you understand that you are a slave to Messiah, that you are a son and daughter of him. When we take that on, we take on this new identity. If you take on that new identity, you're not going to be wrestling with the same sin. You wrestle with the same sin because you're getting your identity kind of crazy from the sin itself, which we'll talk about in a moment. Number eight, if you are lacking deep and sustainable relationships with people, If you're lacking that, it's a good chance we're just going to call a spade a spade. Either you're really introverted, and that's okay. Or, more times than not, what's probably happening is people don't want to be around you. They don't want to be around you because probably the other seven are being manifest. You're speaking in a bunch of religious tones, in Christianese. You're critical. You're putting that on other people. Right? So, if you're struggling with keeping these sustainable relationships, there may be, may be, may be an element that we have not completely unpacked the un understanding of sonship and daughtership. 
And because of that, maybe people are, are hesitant to be around you for some reasons. Now, what's going on here is this. I do believe that as believers, and this comes through my experience of living in Israel, it really dawned on me. And it's this, I think that believers largely have a problem with no name. I don't know if we can quite call it something. And I think what it is, it's this. A belief in Jesus, a belief in Messiah, right? Christianity in, in many regards, or being a follower of him. It's so beautiful, but it's also in a, a, an element, a struggle. And the problem is this. Being a believer in Jesus, we have no binding together through actual biological genetics. Every tribe, every tongue. It's beautiful. It's awesome. But it leaves something, I believe, deeply in it, something dangling. There isn't something to really bind us together. It sounds horrible, except for the blood of Jesus. That's a huge exception, but if we don't understand that, what happens here is we're not like a biological people. We're not a genetic tribe with a shared history in the physical. Now, this dawned on me when I was living in Israel because Jewish people have this. They have a tremendous, tremendous sense of identity of a group. We are all of the same tribe, the same nation, the same people, the same religion, the same God, the same destiny, the same persecution. And there's a binding that comes together. We all know, right, that if, if one is Jewish, we're all, we all know that we're of this seed, we're of this people. Like, you literally can get a DNA test to see. Believers in Messiah, we don't have that. And I think deeply in like a sociological kind of process, we leave ourselves hanging of having this kind of identity issue. Now, the blood of Jesus is supposed to give you the connection. But it only, you're only going to get the connection if you really understand that you are a son and daughter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. You who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. This is Peter talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to the non-Jews in this epistle. You who were not a people, but are now a people. He's talking to largely Roman and Greek genetics. You are not a people, but now you are a people. You had not obtained mercy, but now you have attained mercy. You are a people with a new father, with a new identity, with a new tribe. Now, we're supposed to get this, but I don't know if we completely do. And if we don't get it, it creates different things. It creates all those characteristics. I'm of this clan. I am of this people. It creates a lot of schisms and splits within churches and within single churches. It creates this notion of spiritual tribalism. You who were once a people or once were not a people are now a people. And if we're not grabbing this, this is when all the silly things pick up. You know, I'm a part of this church. I'm a part of this group. Which ministry, or one of my favorites is like, which stream are you in? Right? Are you in the IHOP stream? Are you in the Bethel stream? Are you in this stream? This, come on, man. We're all sons and daughters. We're a part of the same stream. The stream of living waters. And some of you aren't going to like what I'm about to say here, but it drives me nuts. And maybe it's just the way my mind looks, but people are like, what, what is the vision of the church? It's a very common thing. Like, very common amongst pastors. What's your mission statement? What's your vision? What's your goal? I'm like, why is it that only these different churches have different mission statements? All these different visions. 
to give clarity to people so people get on board. Okay, I get it from a business perspective. What do you mean what the vision is? What do you mean what the goal is? It's like in here. Be the hands and feet of Jesus, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, bring the kingdom of God here wherever we go. Every other vision, every other goal is just tribalism. I'm of a people, a chosen generation, a priesthood. What's the vision of your church? Shouldn't it all be the same? Like I said, this might be how I'm thinking. I don't I mean like cast stones. I know like people have different specialties and things and that and all that kind of stuff. But it just racks my brain, man. I'm a son. That's my goal. That's my vision to replicate that on planet Earth. And I personally believe every single church, every single congregation should be having that. That's it. So if you're a prayer movement and you're a worship movement, those streams are supposed to be tributaries into the living stream of the gospel, the full kingdom. If you're a Bible-believing church and you're a charismatic church, all of these streams should be coming together, together in one accord in the same place to replicate the kingdom. Sons and daughters replicate the kingdom. That's the vision. That's the goal. And it's the goal when you're here in church. It's the goal when you're here in Bristol. It's the goal when you're at your house. It's the goal when you're at work. That's the vision of a disciple. That's the vision of a son and daughter. So that's the vision of the church. And I think it should be the vision of all churches because that's the vision that Jesus, Yeshua, sent out. But what we have here is if we adopt the orphan spirit, we need to find the identity. We need to find a different vision statement. What sets us out from something else? This is my identity. I'm part of this stream or this stream. Blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Man, it's time to get back to the gospel. The orphan. This is something, man, I got delivered from. The orphan. This is a big piece to it. I'm not understanding your sonship and daughtership. It, it's this concept that I, that I call the, the rung of the ladder theory. I know some of you have been here. It's this place where you're trying to climb to God. Come on. Trying to climb to earn his favor. It, look, it's very subtle. If I just have more quiet time with him, I'll be closer to him. If I just pray a little harder, then my loved one will come to faith. If I just go to another church service, then I'm going to be good. And if I pray a little more, and if I worship a little harder, I climb up another rung. The problem here is if you don't do those things, then you go down another rung. A lot of churches teach this kind of concept. No, my, 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 my father says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whether I make my bed... He's there. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter what happens. Like if you're an orphan, you have to you, you have to pray more. As a son, you get to pray more. As an orphan, I have to go to church to get my life right. As a son, I get to go to church. Come on. Coming to this meeting is not going to draw you any closer to God. Praying a little bit more is not going to draw you any closer. It is your understanding of that. No matter what I do, who I am is a son. And his heart and his eyes are always staring at me with beloved eyes. And I just need to position myself to see him too. Look, this is the most, by far the most powerful evangelistic tool I have ever encountered with Israelis. We're talking, we're talking about faith, we're talking about religion, we're talking about Judaism, we're talking about the Messiah. Is, is, is Yeshua, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is he not? Blah, blah, all this kind of stuff. And we're talking, we're talking, we're talking, and, you know, I'm just going up against brick walls. Like, nothing is making sense. It's not happening. And then finally we're talking, and I said, you know what? This is it. 
Every single faith and religion on planet Earth says you need to do something to get to God. Judaism, 613 commandments. You've got to climb up the rungs of the ladder to get to him. You see, this faith, this faith is that I can't do anything to get to him, so he came down to get to me. And you just see the veils coming off the eyes. It's the only faith. It's the only religion that says you can't climb up rungs of a ladder to get to God. doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. He has come down to get to you. This is the story of Jacob's ladder. Angels ascending and descending. What did Jacob do? Jacob went to sleep. Jacob rested. And the angels came down. And the angels went up. And he called the place Bethel, house of God. It's nothing. No matter how much you screw up, it doesn't matter how much you pray. That's religion. That's Phariseeism. So if I do this, then I'll be okay. If I don't do this, then I won't be okay. And I'm telling you, if you get caught up in that trap, it will never be good enough. It will never be good enough. Whatever you do, guess what? The list will always get longer. Whatever you do, to find favor because you have an orphan spirit and you don't understand that you have inheritance in heavenly places with Christ Jesus already. You will do things and then it will never be enough. It will just get, the list will just get longer. I need to earn his favor. I need to earn his favor. I need to earn his favor. It's not good enough. I need to keep going. And what happens here is this is why I think that a lot of people struggle with habitual or systemic long-term sin. We create what in psychology is known as a negative feedback loop. Okay? A negative behavior that produces a positive in us so that we continue with that bad behavior. Let me break it down for you. If you don't know who you are, you don't know who you are, you will seek that identity in other things. And ultimately, that will lead to some form, usually, almost always, to sin. Or various issues. Fear, anxiety, not having self-worth because you don't know your sonship, daughtership. And so now what happens here is you're, you're doing the thing. You're doing the sin. You're struggling with the issue. You're struggling with the high thoughts. And now what happens is we just learned right yesterday. It was a beautiful, beautiful line that Clayton said, right? If you don't learn to cast down high thoughts, then someone's going to have to cast them out. The high thought becomes like a, a spiritual presence in your life. So you have to cast these things down. But you're not going to cast these things down when you don't understand your identity. Right? Oh, I'm just going to have fear. I'm just going to have anxiety. I'm going to have these things because that's just the world. But no, that's not the place of sons and daughters. So what happens here is you take it on. Whatever the thought is. Whatever the sin is. And now what happens here is slowly what begins to happen is one begins to define themselves in that thing. It's weird. But psychology teaches this. You become, to become, you, you become comfortable with it. It comes to a place, a source of consistency. It becomes the constant in your life. If you don't know what's going on, you know you're a worrier, so you're going to worry. When everything is a mess in your life, um, uh, and, and you need to go to something that's a constant. And so the constant may be the feelings that you get from smoking or drinking. Or looking at pornography. It becomes the constant. It becomes the thing that's going to soothe you. And it's weird. Even the fear and anxiety can soothe you because if you step into the fear and anxiety, then you know who you are. I'm the one that is fearful. I'm the one that is anxious. And it produces a strange comfort. It's the negative feedback loop. I know it's very strange, but it's the way it works. This is who I am. I'm a, I'm a worrier. Now, you may not even articulate that, but in, in, in a trouble situation, in the storms of life, 
the storm you know. It's not an unknown. You've been there before. So you'll resign in that boat of the storm because you know what that is and you know what will come. Even if it's bad, at least you know it's bad and you know it's coming. So you're going to prep yourself for it. And it creates a very strange kind of psychological and spiritual comfort. And now what happens here is you begin to identify with the issue. You identify with the sin. Because in a weird way, it creates normalcy element of comfort. You'll repeat it. And you'll repeat it. Why? My identity is in that now. You may not articulate that, but deep in your spirit, man, that's what's going on. Does that make sense? I know that was a little out there. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Mrs. Fit, you need Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Messiah Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism and death. That just as, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Right? We are sons. We get to walk in the newness of life if we identify with that. For if we have been united together in the likeness of death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Look, man, you who once were not a people but are now the people of God who have not obtained mercy but now have attained mercy. You need to do something in your spirit, man, and you need to say, look, I need to identify with what God says about me. You're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You're head, not the tail. You're a high priest, a chosen generation. You're a son and a daughter that's supposed to take on the likeness of the Father. And when all of those things start coming at you, you say, that's a feedback loop. That's not me. That's who I once was, but I have become born again. Now what happens here is, I'm telling you prophetically, you get born again and now the world and the spirit of the age tries to get you to go back into your pre-born-again experience. They tried to kill the born-again experience. You're a new creation. No longer identifying the things of the past. Another piece of the orphanhood is really the story of the prodigal son. So much attention is on the prodigal son. So much attention is on the prodigal son. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a weirdo, but the story always drove me nuts. And I know some of you are prodigal sons. And that's very beautiful. I've heard so many sermons on the prodigal son returning. He squandered his inheritance. He did a whole bunch of bad things. And he came back to the father. And he fattened the calf. And they slaughtered the calf. And it's a big party. Lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Great for you prodigal sons out there. Now look, we're all prodigal sons, but I'm telling you, when you've been serving Jesus since you were six years old, I don't really identify too much with the prodigal son. Now don't, I'm not trying to be arrogant. I really, I really identify with the older son. I've been doing everything right. I've been doing everything right. Gone to church, pray, I evangelize, I'm Holy Ghost filled. I've done everything. I've never laid with a woman outside of my wife on our wedding night. I have never done the things of the prodigal son. I've never heard a teaching on the older son. The older son's a little perturbed. He's a little angry. And you know what? I get it. But here's the thing. Everyone wants to take a look at the story of the prodigal son and focus on the prodigal son. There's a story. There's a story. There's a lesson, not just for the prodigal. There's a story for the older son. What did the older son have to realize? What did he have to understand? No matter what you do, whether so bad and so horrible, doesn't matter. The father still says the prodigal son is the son. But on the flip side, doesn't matter if you do everything right, you still cannot earn my favor. Whether you do everything wrong, you do everything right, doesn't matter of how I see you. 
You're still my son. Anyone else? If you're in that boat of the older brother, man, what a freedom it was when I got that. What a freedom. So, in closing up, I've been watching, right, the, the, this, this, the show, the, the Chosen. Has anyone been watching that? All right. And Mrs. Finn, I'm sorry. I called you up a little early for the piano. I apologize. <laughs> I love it. And I'm saying that because we're going to see a video real quick. Let me explain this scene. This is uh, actually season two. Episode three, I need to explain it because it just hit me so hard and I think it has a lot to do with all this. And it's this. The show takes a tremendous amount of poetic license. The whole show is through the eyes of the disciples, how they came to faith, what's their backstory, what it's like, and all that kind of stuff. Very interesting. Look, a lot of it is not found in the scripture. It's poetic license. It's like artistic. But a lot of it makes sense. It really does make sense. For example... Matthew has been called to become a disciple. Matthew is a tax collector. They're like, they're worse than the Romans. Why are they worse than the Romans? Because they're Jews who have kind of sold themselves to the Romans to make money. And now you have Peter. So Matthew, the prodigal son, now Peter, the fisherman. Galilee, where all the strong Jews are living works with his hands, have suffered underneath persecution from the Romans, has suffered underneath taxation. And now Matthew and now Peter are both disciples. They're sitting around a fire with some of the other disciples, John and Andrew and Mary. And all day, now the sun is setting, all day Jesus has been healing. And they take shifts all right, John, now it's your turn. Go hang out with Jesus for a couple hours. He comes back. Now Peter goes out, and they take shifts. As Jesus is out there healing all day long, which is in the Scriptures, and what's really crazy is who is he healing? The Samaritans. Essentially the non-Jew. Healing all day, all day. And now they're sitting around the fire, and they're having a little conversation. Let's, hit, let's go for it. Uh, so the 28th minute... 30 seconds. Of the occupation. I'd love to ask him more about that. Why this has been allowed for so long. It's hard to feel like the chosen people. I've been there. But it's all worth it now, yes? The wait is over. What about you? What do you mean? Has it been difficult for you all this time? The occupation? following Jewish law. My life has not been easy. Oh, it hasn't. What was more painful for you? Escaping Roman persecution by working for them or escaping your guilt with all the money? And now you're catching up on Torah and wanting to follow the law. Why now all of a sudden? Why not all the other times you had the chance? Simon? No, no, John, I want to know. Mary had horrible trauma. She didn't choose all that happened to her. What's your excuse? What do you want me to say? I don't know what you want from me. An apology. What? Simon's not wrong. He could be more delicate about it, but you did choose to work for them. And you made my life even harder than it already was. And you haven't apologized. No, no, don't say it. I don't want you to apologize. It doesn't matter. What would hearing him say sorry do? I won't forgive it anyway. What keeps putting you in authority? Who are you to forgive or not to forgive? What, you're on his side? No, of course not. But you've had your problems too. 
What about apologizing for what you almost did to us with their omens? I didn't go through with it. I was trying to save my family's life, and I love you, John, but that's not something you have to worry about when Zeb and Salome are looking out for you. But you put me in a desperate position where I did things I would never have done otherwise. And I've repented for them, and John and James, I am sorry, but I didn't go through with it. What is your excuse? I was a successful businessman, and yet I was always behind. He wasn't your tax collector. You quit defending him. I want an answer. Hey, you're Lou. Do you even know what it's like to be Jewish? To suffer for centuries and centuries because of it, but to still commit to it? To protect our heritage even though it never stops being painful? Because the one comfort we have is to know that we're doing it together. That we're all suffering together. But if, if we just wait a little longer, if we hold tight, just a little more, we'll have rescue because we're chosen, all of us. And you betrayed that and you spit on it. I can't forgive it. I'll never forgive it. All right. You said what you needed to say. Sit down, Simon. You sit down first. So good news, you're not alone. Even the disciples, we have reason to believe, didn't quite understand what it meant to be a son. And they criticize, and they're fearful, and they're full of anxiety. But the one who knew he was the son, Jesus of Nazareth, while they're complaining and criticizing, full of fear, what is he doing? Healing. What is he doing? He's fulfilling the vision, the vision of the ecclesia, the vision of the church. 
when you know that you're a son, when you know that you're a daughter, there's no time for all the other stuff and all the other identity. Because when you're a son, you're replicating the kingdom. When you're a daughter, you're replicating the kingdom of Messiah, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Your identity is in him. Not in all the other stuff of who is the better Jew? Who is the one that is favored? Who is this? Who has suffered more? Why the fear? Why the anxiety? Where the sin? So how does Peter become a man who at one glance is highly critical in this version of him to a man who will still deny Jesus three times? How does he now go from that being to a being where Jesus says, you, you are the one that will make my rock. The one who decides to be and chooses to be crucified upside down next to his wife. How a transition. Because Peter, in between those two events, he saw a death and he saw a resurrection. You're chosen. All of those disciples were chosen. You were chosen. He said unto you, follow me. If he's saying that you are to follow him, it means he already views you as a son or daughter. So everything else just actually doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what you struggle with. It doesn't matter. Because he said, follow me. See, many of us don't struggle with believing in Jesus. We struggle with Jesus believing in us. He believes in you, that you are a son, that you are a daughter. Won't we stand? We need to get this. Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Do we hear this? That all of creation is waiting and has been waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be made manifest. We need to transition our thinking that we're not just saved, but that we're sons and daughters. And sons and daughters know that God favors us. Sons and daughters know that we are to replicate the kingdom. That is the vision. Sons and daughters know that my father is not going to withhold blessing from me. My father is going to take care of me. Sons and daughters know that there are aliens and sojourners and pilgrims on this earth. And all the things of this earth... I don't receive my identity from. My life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. How can one be fearful when your father is he who fashioned the stars? When we get this, we're no longer critical. When we get this, we no longer gossip so that we can feel better about ourselves. When we get this, we no longer have to prove to our loved ones and the people in the church that we are somehow holier in any kind of subtle ways or that we know all the answers. Because that's what Peter was doing around that campfire. What does Jesus do when his accusers come to him? He doesn't even open his mouth. There's no time to open your mouth. There's no time. We, we need to bring the kingdom. And so when other churches and other believers are bickering around the campfire, we need to be a people that are a chosen generation, sons and daughters that are going out healing the sick. Going out serving. Not receiving our identity through the accolades of men. Not striving. Not trying to prove our way into the kingdom just receiving it as a gift from above. Amen? Amen. Father, I just pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would fall right now, Lord, in those people who have said that they're sons and daughters, but maybe didn't 
quite get it. That they would get it. They don't have to prove. They don't have to climb up a ladder. They don't have to care about their image. They don't have to prove to the pastor. They don't have to prove to the worship leader. They don't have to prove anything to anyone. Let that spirit fall in our midst. Doesn't matter what shame, you're highly favored. Doesn't matter of how well you've done, it doesn't matter. You're still a son. You can't earn it. Father, I pray that we would just be released from that spirit of bondage of the world. We can step into sonship. Why? Orphans can't repay the favor to the Father. But sons and daughters can have the heart to turn to you. Why? Because the earth is waiting for the kingdom. They're waiting for sons and daughters to be made manifest. And we have an altar team today. If you can come on down, if, if you want some prayer on this matter or anything else, please feel free to come down. I want to encourage you. I know it's, it's a little later today. Just encourage you to just, if you're feeling led, you just bask in the presence. Let the Lord do a work. Dare I say, I would even go back and repent if you've been displaying these characteristics in your life. Ask the Lord to reveal what he says about you. Let him give you an identity. Not just an identity of being born again, but an identity of being a son, an identity of being a daughter. Have a wonderful week. We'll be here Wednesday for prayer at 7 o'clock. Next week we will conclude our sermon series on memorial stones. Have a wonderful week.